You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't on the Savage Lovecast. I'm tempted to go off. Today, here on my Sex and Relationship Advice podcast, on Trump's joint press conference with Putin in Helsinki yesterday, the presser where Trump attacked the United States and the rule of law while heaping praise on Vladimir Putin the day after the Justice Department released a mountain of evidence and a stack of indictments that really does prove Russia criminally meddled in our election. That was the same presser where Putin took a moment to let us all know that the P-tape is real. And he did that by bringing up the P-tape unprompted and offering a lame non-denial denial about its existence. So yeah, the P-tape, which is kind of a sex and relationship, sex advice kind of thing, the P-tape and a thing with deep political implications, the P-tape is real. And Trump's performance in Helsinki was so shocking, so treasonous, that even Fox News talking, demagoguing, lying, smearing heads were critical. I could talk about all that, but I don't want to talk about all that, not anymore, because today I want to focus on something positive. I want to say, I want to open my show by saying, thank you, London. Seriously, thank you to everyone in London who protested last weekend, all 250,000 of you. It was the largest single protest against a foreign leader in London's history, and London's history goes back a bit, a couple of millennia at least. So for a thing to be the biggest version of that thing in London's history, whatever that thing is that we're talking about, that's a really big thing. The people of London recognize Trump for the malignant threat to Western democracy and to simple human decency that he is, and it was a joy to watch. We've been marching and protesting over here for a year and a half while we impatiently wait for those midterm elections to roll around. And the protest in London this weekend, gotta say it was a real morale booster. And the signs, oh my God, the signs, all in all, you're just another prick with no wall. Your ma was an immigrant, you tangerine roaster. No smelly Trump allowed. Trump, of course, is British slang for an audible fart. Tried to get that off the ground in Savage Love, wrote about it, didn't take, but nice to see it at the protest. Another sign, a bit like Hitler, but his hands are littler. Fuck off, pea brain. And my favorite... We heart the U.S., but dislike pussy-grabbing, fake-tanning, saber-rattling, serial-philandering, white supremacist-pandering, compulsive-lying, First Amendment-defying, corporate-whoring, hate-mongering, no-shaming, infant-detaining, immigrant-blaming, Putin-colluding, climate-change-denying, asinine-prevailing, overprivileged, draft-dodging, underperforming, inheritance-squandering, insecure, infantile, business-failing, snake-oil-selling, small-minded, tiny-handed, semi-literate celebrity demagogues. That was genius. On a personal note, London, I lived in you. I lived in London for a year and change, a long-ass time ago. So long ago that I marched in the streets of London myself to protest the adoption of Section 28, an anti-gay law rammed through Parliament by, this is how long ago it was, Margaret Thatcher's government. I've loved London and smart, funny, no-bullshit Londoners ever since. Londoners, like New Yorkers, come from all over the world. So in a very real way, that crowd in the streets of London this weekend represented not just the people of London or the people of the UK, but the people of the world. There were immigrants from all over the globe in that crowd, including thousands and thousands of American expats. There were also tons of ITMFA t-shirts in the crowd. People were sending me screen grabs. Appreciated it. 
And also in that crowd, joy, positivity, a sense of humor, and a real sense of connection. And I got to say, that's what got us through the darkest years of the AIDS crisis, which is when they threw Section 28 at us in the United Kingdom. And it's what's going to get us through these dark years. So that really helped. Thank you again to everyone in London. This may be our darkest hour, and you came through for us this weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, free with ads, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and coming up on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast, which is twice as much Savage Lovecast with no ads. You can subscribe to it at savagelovecast.com. Dr. Debbie Herbenick from Indiana University joins us to discuss dating while being a sex researcher and how that might complicate your romantic life. That's on the Magnum. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old lesbian who lives in Brooklyn. My question is more broadly about feminism and more specifically about the extent to which it makes sense for me to get involved in my parents' marriage. My parents are both supportive of me being gay, but my mom is way more supportive than my dad, who often tries to make jokes about gayness as well as gender, I think because he's self-conscious about his ability to engage in these topics. Also, he never helps my mom in the kitchen, and it makes me angry that he makes her get up and get food for him. And last week, I was really close to telling him to get his own fucking pizza rather than making my mom get it, but I feel like that isn't my place. I did tell my mom she needs to teach him about feminism, and she said she knows. What do you think? Should I talk to my dad or stay out of my parents' marriage? I generally come down on the side of stay the fuck out of your parents' marriage. The fact that your parents are still married after all these years when most people's parents, at least in my social circles, tend to have divorced long ago is a sign that... Maybe something's working. And who knows? Who knows what's up with your mother? Maybe being ordered to go get her layabout husband another slice of pizza turns your mother on. Who knows? Maybe your parents are in a DS relationship. Is that something you want to pry out of mom in a heart-to-heart conversation? Maybe not. As for your dad, asshole comments about queers, asshole comments about feminism those sometimes i have a lot of asshole relatives i am an asshole relative and sometimes asshole relatives make jokes or snide remarks or say assholey things to open up the topic for conversation those moments when your dad says something assholey engage with your dad about that assholery debate with your dad and you can do that while at the same time staying the fuck out of your parents marriage if you are genuinely concerned that your mother is being abused and badly used when she is ordered to march her ass into the kitchen and bring your dad a pizza or a beer, you can have that convo with mom. Mom bothers me when dad orders you around and then see what mom says. Maybe it bothers her too and she needs to link arms with you and stage a little intervention with her asshole husband, also known as your asshole dad. Or maybe she's fine with this. Maybe she likes this. Maybe this is one way your mom takes care of him and there are lots of ways your dad takes care of her and it is a back and forth even if you don't perceive the back and forth but stay the fuck out that said you can stay the fuck out and still have a convo with your dad when he says assholey things you can engage and you can have a convo with your mom and express your concerns while at the same time staying the fuck out of their marriage and that may seem like a contradiction stay the fuck out have the conversations you can have the conversations you can express your concern you can engage you can tell someone you're worried about them 
while at the same time not staging some sort of massive intervention, not having a throwdown with dad or dad and mom telling them that things in their relationship have to change because things in their relationship don't quite align with your feminist principles and the kind of egalitarianism you would like to see modeled in their relationship is absent. Yeah, don't go there. Have the convo and then let them sort their relationship out themselves. No need to intervene in that aggressive way unless there is abuse, unless your father is emotionally, psychologically or physically abusive, in which case an intervention is absolutely required, in which case you must get involved in your parents' marriage. But if they're just interpersonal dynamics that leave you feeling uncomfortable, yeah, no intervention, no big fucking throwdown. That's what I mean by stay the fuck out. But you can pull mom aside. You can have lunch with mom alone and say, there are things in your relationship with dad. Sometimes give me pause. How do you feel about them? And if she's at ease and peace with these dynamics, butt the fuck out. Resume butting the fuck out. Make your gentle inquiries around the margins. But otherwise, stay the fuck out. Because careful, careful if you pry into a relationship that there are issues, there are things that annoy you, particularly if it's your parents' relationship. Careful if you pry. Because... You might find out some shit about your parents that you would rather not know. Hey, Dan. Uh, I've been casually seeing um, a man for the last handful of months. We don't see each other often. um, So in those months, we've only seen each other probably a total of five or six times. Uh, And um, it's been fun. He's very nice. And a couple of the times that we've been together, we've both gotten super hammered. So uh, the sex was, you know, acceptable because I was too drunk to really have any demands. Here's the problem. Yesterday I saw him and I decided to bring up to him that I had been frustrated because the previous time we hung out, he came over, I gave him head and then he just left after he came uh, with no regard whatsoever to my orgasm. So yesterday we saw each other and I brought it up to him and I asked him, you know, do you not enjoy eating pussy? What's the deal? And his response was, oh, I'll only eat it if you get right out of the shower. So my question is, is this bullshit? I mean, I think it's ridiculous for starters. Second of all, it made me feel like I disgust him. And third of all, it kind of takes away from the spontaneity of of sex. Like, I don't really want to be sleeping with someone who can't be in the moment. And I need to get my pussy eaten, goddammit. And I don't feel like I should need to have to take a shower first. Anyway, my question is, is this enough of a reason to stop seeing someone? That first time that he blew a load down your throat and then jumped up and grabbed his pants and left, that was a good enough reason to stop seeing someone. You could have cut it off there. Obviously, you're still interested in him. You're still attracted to him. Otherwise, you wouldn't have inquired about his deal with your pussy. And I want to weigh in and say, yeah, his demands are unreasonable. Although, I don't know what your personal hygiene practices look like exactly. Are you a once-every-other-week shower type of gal? They're out there in the world. I sat next to one on the subway just the other day. If you are that girl, the once-every-other-week shower type, I don't think it's unreasonable for him to say, hey, take a shower. I've told women who go down on men who don't practice good personal hygiene that they can say, yeah, I will suck your dick after you get out of the shower. gotten letters from women who... The guy they're going down on doesn't practice good personal hygiene and they can smell the shit stank wafting off his dingleberry encrusted asshole. And yeah, I think you can send someone to the bathroom to take a shower at that moment, particularly if 
the leverage, the benefit, the, 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 the commodified exchange is shower for blowjob. And if you present the same sort of personal hygiene challenges that that kind of guy presents to his female partners, I think your male partner is perfectly within rights to say, yeah, I will eat your pussy right after you take your first shower this week. But if you're a daily or every other daily bather, shower, if you do practice good personal hygiene and this is his response that you must scrub that thing the instant before I press my face into it. Fuck no, don't put up with that. Kick that fucking asshole to the curb. That's bullshit. Asterix, if you practice good personal hygiene. Double asterix, if you don't practice good personal hygiene, yeah, go take a shower and then I'll eat your pussy. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old bi-curious cis female living outside of the political dumpster fire of Washington, D.C. My question has to do with dating women, which is something I've never done. I've been the very special guest star in a few threesomes with couples who I just kind of randomly came across on Tinder. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed all of them. Uh, But I mean, the vast majority of my sexual experiences overall have definitely been with men. And like I said, the only encounters I've had with women is with their man present. Uh, But lately, I've been really wondering what it'd be like to have a one-on-one experience with a female. And I'm really digging the idea of not having someone with a penis around kind of orchestrating the whole thing and just, you know, getting that female energy and just one-on-one experience. But I'll admit part of me getting turned on by this is motivated by like loving the idea of telling my male partner about it. And I think that kind of makes me feel like an asshole if I were to pursue a sexual relationship with a lesbian or bisexual female while knowing that part of me is enjoying it so much for heterosexually motivated reasons. Uh, I mean, to be absolutely clear, I'm very interested in pleasuring a woman and receiving pleasure from a woman. And my satisfaction from that isn't hinging on only the ability to tell my male partner. Um, But I just, I still somehow feel like a poser if I were to try to seduce a woman when my feelings are so purely physical. Of course, I wouldn't mislead anyone. I'd be very, you know, upfront. And I know that, you know, women, lesbian women as well, do, you know, want to have no string attached you know, physical, purely physical, no romantic feeling sex. But I don't know. I feel like it just kind of would be like I was using them. Also, am I wrong to view myself as primarily heterosexual when I do have such obvious, strong sexual attraction to women? Is this just some bullshit beating around the bush, you know, from calling myself bisexual? I'm just trying to make sense of it and how to go about, you know, being with women, which is what I want in a very basic sense. Just last week, the topic of lopsided, quote-unquote lopsided bisexuality came up in Savage Love, my syndicate is advice column. There's been a lot of discussion about lopsided bisexuality for years, a necessary and overdue discussion, acknowledgement of the reality of most people's, most bisexual people's lived experience of their own bisexuality, which is that it is lopsided. A bisexual person may have a stronger romantic attraction to one sex or the other sex, which kind of flies in the face of a lot of bi sloganeering from the first 20 years-ish of the LGBT civil rights movement. We fall in love with people, not genitals. Not as it turned out in the end. There are a lot of bisexual people out there who are what are now known as bisexual heteroromantic. There are also bisexual people out there who are biromantic. They're equally attracted to male or female or anybody else along that gender spectrum partners. And there are bi people who are homoromantic, who are Bisexual, but primarily attracted romantically to members of their own sex. 
So you are most likely not a blocked up, not a constipated bisexual. You are most likely bisexual in the way that I think the majority of bisexuals are bisexual. You're attracted to people of both sexes or all points along the gender spectrum. And you are primarily or exclusively romantically attracted. You want to partner with, couple up with men, opposite sex partners. That is common. It does not disqualify you from identifying as bisexual or putting yourself out there. Robin Oaks, bisexual activist, crafted this expansive, multi-sentence, paragraph-long definition of bisexuality that really captures you and I think most bisexuals out there. I call myself bisexual, Oaks says, because I acknowledge that I have in myself the potential to be attracted romantically and or sexually to people of more than one sex and or gender, not necessarily at the same time, not necessarily in the same way, and not necessarily to the same degree. That's you. You fit in Robin Oak's definition of bisexuality, which is the operative, I think, and best definition of bisexuality floating around out there right now. When you go out there seeking sex with women, solo on your own, not unicorn style, just be honest. Just put it out there that you are sexually attracted to men and women, but romantically it's men for you. And then the women that you're attracted to, lesbian or bi, who might want to get with you, they can opt in or opt out. If what they're looking for is romance, if they're attracted to you in that way, if they want a relationship with you, they'll know because they'll be fully informed because you will tell them that they shouldn't fuck you. And you will find, you will sift through the available bi and lesbian women until you find the women and there will be lots of them out there who want to fuck you and don't want to date you. Hi, Dan. I'm a 20-year-old married woman living in the Midwest. And uh, I guess I'd like to preface this question by saying to all of the other young listeners out there that, yes, Dan's right, getting married really young is a big mistake. Right now, I am getting ready to go through a divorce, and we're kind of at the stage, I'm married to another woman, Uh, her and I are at the stage where we know what's happening, Um, we're kind of transitioning into this friends who live together role. I have a couple of dating apps, and I guess my question is, how do I rule this out to new potential dating partners? I don't really want anything serious for a while. However, you know, getting to know people, how do you have any advice for me on how I bring this up? Um, Obviously, it looks like I have really poor judgment, and, you know, I do. But what's the best way to talk about this? It's something I'm kind of becoming ashamed of. And I don't want to regret the time that I've spent with my current wife. But I also want to be able to move forward and be taken seriously. I wish I could have been there. If you had invited me to the wedding, I would have shown up and slapped the rings out of your hands. Getting married before you were 20 at 19 or 18 In some states, it is still tragically in this country legal for people to get married with their parents' permission at 13. That needs to end. But yeah, oh my God, what a stupid fucking thing to do. I don't say this to shame you, and you're not the only person who's made this mistake, but oh my God. Nobody should get married that young, as you now know. I worry about a lot of young queers out there who 
can, for the time being, we'll see what happens with the new Supreme Court. For the time being, all these young queers out there who can get married because we're told when we're young and we're queer, depending on where we live and what our families and faith traditions are like, we're told that we're sick and we're damaged and that our love is not real. And then we come out and to prove that our love is real, we make premature showy commitments. Used to be that we could make those premature showy commitments without having to then go and hire a divorce attorney when that premature showy commitment came to shit which often happens, and that is not your shame. Most relationships end, many fail, but most relationships that we're going to be in over the course of our lives are not going to be the relationship we're going to be in until the end of our lives because we have to cast around and hopefully in the end find somebody who works out for us long-term if long-term is what we want. Not everybody wants long-term, and for some people, many, many serially monogamous relationships are what works for them. But yeah, everybody makes a mistake at your age, which is why you don't want to lock a mistake in, a potential mistake at 18. If at 18 you feel like this is the person I want to marry and spend the rest of my life with, and it's true that you're going to spend the rest of your life with this person, they'll still be there when you're 28, and you can marry them then, or when you're 32, and you can marry them then. All right, not to pile on, not to make you feel worse than you already feel. What do you say to people that you date now? You just tell them the fucking truth. When you were young and stupid, you did a young and stupid thing. Everybody, when they're young and stupid, does young and stupid things. No one you tell that to is not going to have young and stupids in their past. Some will have the identical young and stupid in their past. Some people that you meet will have gotten married at 20, at 22, at 23, and you'll bond over that. It'll be something that you have in common. And some people you meet won't have that particular mistake in their young and stupid past but they will have equally consequential mistakes. They will have made equally consequential mistakes, if not the same mistake. And if you tell someone that you were married and they judge or shame you more than I did earlier, but if you tell someone that you were married and married young and they judge or shame you, fuck that person. That's not somebody you want to be with. That's someone who is looking around in the life of someone that they're dating for things that they can wield as cudgels. If you tell someone something about your past and they pick it up and beat you with it, or hold it over your head in the course of the relationship you're in with that person now, get the fuck away from that person. That person is malicious and controlling and kind of emotionally abusive, and you shouldn't want to be with that person. Again, as with so many things that we discuss on this show, you're telling someone one thing about you, and their reaction is going to tell them everything you need to know about them. So don't be embarrassed or ashamed. You made a mistake. Everybody makes mistakes. I'm concerned that young queers are particularly susceptible to making this particular mistake because we want to prove to our parents who told us that queer love isn't real love, that they're wrong. Our love is so strong and so powerful and so real that even though we're only 19, we're getting married. That's how real and strong and powerful it is. Please don't make that mistake. Please wait. If it's foolish for straight people to do it, it's foolish for queer people to do it. And it is a generally acknowledged fact that it is a foolish thing for someone to marry in their teens or 20s. Sometimes it's a foolish thing for someone to marry in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, or 70s. Marriage ain't for everybody. Hi, Dan. My first job was when I was in high school. I was working at a daycare, so I took care of four-year-olds. And now it's 13 years later, and I realized one of my new coworkers is one of the little ones I took care of. And now he's a teenager. 
and he doesn't remember me, but I remember him. So I'm wondering, would it be weird to say to him, hey, by the way, I took care of you when you were four years old, or do you think that might make uh, him uncomfortable and I should just keep it to myself? The answer is obvious, and we'll get to it. Well, we have our questions, though, and you didn't leave a callback number, so we can't call you back and interrogate you. It is the sense of the tech-savvy at-risk youth Senate that there's something up. Because why are you calling a sex podcast, a sex and relationship advice show about this boy if you don't have sex and relationships on your mind? Why are you calling? Why are you calling us? Why aren't you calling Prudy? Why aren't you calling Carolyn Hacks? Why aren't you writing to Ask Amy or Dear Abby? Why me? And the sense of the tech savvy at risk youth Senate is that you want to fuck this kid. I don't ascribe to that, actually. I, I dissent from the sense of the Senate. I think you just called me out of habit. I think you called me because you listened to the show and the number was stuck in your head, 206-302-2064. It was just stuck in your head and I was the first person that came to mind. I don't think you necessarily want to fuck this kid. Looking at the timeline, doing the math, you are roughly 29 or 30 years old and this kid is 17 or 18 years old. I do not think – and here's the advice part of the response – I do, as opposed to the insinuation section of the response, I do not think that you should go to this kid and say, hey, I remember you when you were four. He's a teenage boy, probably at his first job, where he may feel a little insecure about his youth and inexperience and having a coworker come up and say, I remember when you were shitting in your diapers. I remember giving you a juice box is probably going to make him feel more self-conscious. What 17 and 18-year-olds, particularly at their first job, want more than anything in the world is to be perceived as a grown-up, as an adult, as capable and competent. And you throwing it out there that, hey, I remember you when you were four. I was taking care of you when you were four. I was picking snot off your nose and helping you wipe your ass when you were four. We'll hamper that. We'll make it a problem. Make it more difficult for him to be perceived the way he would like to be perceived, which is as a grown-up. So at least for now... Shut the fuck up. Keep it to yourself. Don't tell him. Don't remind him that he was four years old. Don't turn him into a four-year-old in the eyes of your colleagues and his coworkers by blurting this out in a staff room full of people or joking about it. Let him be the adult that he is for a while. Let him establish himself in this workplace. And if you begin to have a friendly relationship, then you can roll it out. You can say, hey, I didn't bring this up earlier because you were new and I didn't want you to be self-conscious, but, but that convo is at least six months away. And if you want to fuck this guy, what's the vote of the tech savvy at risk youth? Let's look around the room. Don't fuck this guy. Don't fuck this guy. Everybody says don't fuck this guy. Would be weird to fuck somebody you took care of when you were four. That would be super weird. So don't fuck this guy. If that's why you called me. I don't think that's why you called me. I think you called me because the number was stuck in your head. The tech savvy at-risk youth, on the other hand, they have filthy fucking perverted minds. Hi, I have a question. I've been married for 20 years. My wife and I are in our late 40s. We've gone through some dry spells of sex. I definitely have a higher libido. We've gone as long as two years without sex. Things got a little stale, and we decided to maybe open the marriage up a little bit. Um, she met a guy at work that she was having a fling with. And that ended after about six months, and now she's met a second guy, and I love hearing about her, and I think it's pretty hot, and we have good sex afterwards. But my question is, I'm starting to feel a little left out. She says I should go meet someone myself, but I'm not sure how to go about it. I don't know if I trust websites with all hacking. We live in a very small town. 
we have school age children. I'm afraid of somebody finding out and getting out. I'm just not sure what I should do. If your wife's fucking coworkers, dudes at work in your small town, odds are everybody already knows. Six month affair with a coworker, not usually a secret that keeps. But I can understand why you're worried about putting yourself out there, particularly in a small town where people are judgy. And there is, there have been documented cases of workplace discrimination against people in open relationships, particularly straight people in open relationships. Even instances where people have lost their kids to exes in custody disputes because the new relationship that mom or dad was in was an open one. So your caution and your concern, justifiable. But I wonder if the cow that you're worried about hasn't already wandered out of the barn that people knowing in your small town if your wife was fucking somebody she works with for six long months. All right, I I get in trouble when this topic comes up because this is a fact of open relationships, opposite-sex couples division where it's very easy for the woman to line up dick and it's a lot harder for the dude to find women who will sleep with a married man. Finding men who sleep with married women, not hard. Finding women who sleep with married men, considerably more difficult. And it can cause a lot of stress and friction in the relationship. It can put a strain on the relationship. If the wife is banging away with lots of other dudes and the husband, although banging the wife and banging the wife more often now and you two are having better and, and more exciting sex now. So congratulations. It's one of the fringe benefits often of opening a relationship. The husband feels deprived and, and, and stews and, and feels neglected and begins to resent the wife for her romantic or sexual success with others while he is home alone with his dick in his hand. I think if the wife is interested in the open relationship succeeding and her continuing to have the freedom that she obviously enjoys, your wife, to have the freedom she obviously enjoys, that she should give you an assist, that it is in the best interest not just of the dude in the open opposite sex relationship for the wife to do what she can to help him, but for the wife It's in her best interest, too, if she wants the relationship to continue to be open and joyful as opposed to stressful and then a lot of resentment coming in and then conflict and fights and the relationship ultimately closing up again. So it might be a good idea, not just for you but for your wife as well, if your wife attends some swingers events with you. Even if she's not going to sleep with anybody else, if she's got her boyfriend on the side and she just wants you too, she can still go with you. Because single men can't go to swingers events typically by themselves. So attend with you. Also, if you put yourself out there on apps or you take out a personal ad or you meet someone, it can be very helpful if the wife vouches for the husband. If your app, if your ad on your app that you're in an open relationship and you're seeking extras includes your wife and access to your wife, links to her account too, so that anyone you're interested in who's interested in sleeping with you can verify that you're in an open relationship and they aren't being lied to and aren't party to an infidelity, that can go a long way as well. I get in trouble. People get mad at me. Women shouldn't have to do this extra labor to help their male partners get laid. Yeah, I get it. They shouldn't have to. My point is they might want to because if the wheels come off that open relationship that she's enjoying – she may not be in that open relationship for much longer. It may lead to the collapse of the primary relationship or her primary partner may insist on closing the relationship up again because the jealousy and the resentment is too much. So, yep, I agree. Doesn't have to. 
but might want to. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old male-identified homo from New York. I've been listening to your show on and off since I was 15, and I have to say you are a true American treasure to us all. Um, please forgive me if this question has been addressed a thousand times before, but I was hoping you could impart some wisdom on the art of fisting. Up until a few weeks ago, I had never tried anything bigger than a toy with a six-inch diameter, but my curiosities took hold of me, and I went down the rabbit hole, literally. I got a few larger toys and have had some incredible solo sessions with just hands and finally managed to take my entire fist the other week. It's honestly so much fun, and the stretching really turns me on intensely, and I'm eager to find the right partner to do it with. But my dilemma is that since this experimentation, I've had sex bottoming with a few guys of varying sizes, ranging from super, super big, like really big, and a little below average, some others. And I have to say the dicks did not feel quite the same as they had pre-anal stretching adventure. They felt good, but my ass stretched open and fully relaxed so much more quickly and easily that it almost felt unsatisfying, I hate to say. From all that I've read and learned, I have the impression that the general consensus around fisting is that your hole just kind of snaps back shut after play, unless you really traumatize it, and you're just able to handle larger toys and dicks more easily. But your tightness, quote-unquote, doesn't really get compromised. You just kind of go from JV to varsity in the anal experience arena. I just don't feel my ass gripping the dick like it did before. I'm really good at relaxing my body, but maybe now I've trained it to relax too much. Do I do cables or maybe try taking a month or two off in between sessions? Something about going varsity really scares me, but I honestly cannot stop. Um, yours truly concerned reaming enthusiast. In response to a question about fisting from a young gay man, roughly your same age, in my column, I quoted Dr. Peter Shallot, who said there is a misconception that these activities, we're talking about fisting, can cause damage by stretching or tearing the tissue when actually the anus is very elastic and much of the, quote, permission to enter actually involves intentional relaxation of the muscles by the bottom and not force applied by the top. So what I think that you've done, the, the, the corner you've turned is not you're so permanently stretched out that you can't enjoy dick. You say that you are a very relaxed person. You're able to relax and open up for the giant toys and your own fist and maybe somebody else's fist down the road. And what you're doing now when you bottom, when you have anal sex, is you are opening up in the same way. You need to bear down. You need to do your kegels. I think if you're fisting on the regular, I think if you're not fisting on the regular, it's a good idea to do your kegels. I never get fisted. I don't like kegels. Do your kegels. But you can intentionally relax and open up. That's what you've learned and you're experimenting with toys and increasingly larger toys. And what you've got to do now is bear down. The opposite of relax. Not tense up so that bottoming is painful, but grip close up. Do the kegel with the dick in your ass. Shut it down. Grip it. Grab it with your sphincter. You can do it. So you've trained yourself to relax and open up. You've got to train yourself to know when not to relax that much, not to open up that much. So anal is still pleasurable for you. may not be as pleasurable for you going forward as Fisting in large toys, not because the physical sensations are any different, but because the psychological sensations are better with fisting, that you like that bigness thing. That bigness thing trips an erotic trigger for you that just dick, even a very large dick, can't trigger. So it's possible you may be one of those people who toys and fisting is the ultimate and anal's okay. 
and you found your ultimate and now everything else pales in comparison, it doesn't mean the stuff that pales in comparison isn't as good as it used to be. It's just a new thing that you've gotten into is better. You can still enjoy the good and the stuff you were into previously. And finally, wrestling here with you're describing yourself as literally having gone down the rabbit hole when what happened was no rabbits were involved, no rabbit holes were involved, the holes of no rabbits were violated. You literally stuffed some giant things up your hole, which in no way compares or comports with that thing you said literally happened with you and a rabbit hole, unless you were getting fisted by the Mad Hatter. Hey, Dan. I'm a 52-year-old cisgendered gay male, and tonight I was having uh, sex with a young man, and I was bottoming, and all of a sudden I felt a thermometer in my butt. Uh, I asked him what the thermometer was for, uh, and he basically said, oh, taking your temperature, and it was like, okay, this is kind of strange, uh, and I asked him why, and he said he just wanted to know that my butt was the right temperature for sex. I've never heard of this before. Is this really a thing? Uh, why would someone want to take my butt temperature? Not too sure. My hunch is that he has a medical fetish. And rather than confess that he has a medical fetish to you, he pulled out of his own ass this other explanation that literally makes no sense. Wanted to make sure your ass is the right temperature. What is your ass? A chicken cutlet? So you going to get salmonella from your ass if it's not thoroughly cooked? No. But he's probably struggling with kink shame. Some people struggling with kink shame will do this thing where they will explain their turn on in terms that are more off-putting than just owning the kink. Why are you doing? Why are you interested in this? Well, because blah, 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 blah. and what'll come out of their mouths is some alternate explanation that makes no sense, is ridiculous on its face, and is more off-putting and more disconcerting than just owning the kink. That said, he shouldn't have busted a thermometer out on you without prior negotiation. That is not a move you pull on someone. You don't transition to a medical scene or medical play. You don't pull a speculum out and stuff it in someone or a thermometer without some conversation about your sexual interests and your kinks. So the guy is deeply weird, deeply conflicted, deeply inconsiderate, and not a good sex partner, and you shouldn't fuck him again. And if that guy's listening or if you, caller, send him a link to the show so he hears, hey, dude, own your medical fetish. Don't freak people out by stuffing thermometers in their asses to make sure that they're the right temperature. There's only two things people are going to take away from that. You're nuts. Or you're nuts. Tell them the truth. Medical play and a thermometer in the butt kind of turns you on. You hope they don't mind. Would they be okay with you taking their temperature? If you're charming and upbeat and funny about it and solicitous of their kinks and their turn-ons and concerned with their comfort and their consent, they'll react positively. More positively than they will react if you just surprise them with a thermometer or a speculum or an enema hose in their butt. Hi, Dan. This is a 21-year-old from Los Angeles, and I have a question. So um, I've known that I wanted to be a human sexuality professor and sex therapist since I was about 15, and it's my passion and my life purpose. And I'm wondering, um, so since I've been dating... I've noticed that once I bring it up, 
that the guys that I've been dating just completely sexualize it. And I'll be talking about something that I've learned in school or um, working with a mentor. And, um, you know, it's when I'm talking about my work in the the most mundane way, um, you know, guys will go and say to me, they'll be like, you know, you have to stop it because this is making me too horny. So um, my question is, how can I be empowered in my my work and share these kinds of things without having my partners or potential partners sexualize me? It's um, it's gotten to the point where it's it's happened where um, I try not to bring it up after a couple of dates, and it just it keeps happening. So I would love to have your advice. Joining me to help tackle this question. Dr. Debbie Herbenick, professor at Indiana University School of Public Health, sex educator at the Kinsey Institute, author of The Corgasm Workout and many other books, uh, and a sex researcher. Hey, Debbie. Hey, how are you? Uh, Good. How are you? Good. It's nice to be back. So, yeah, thanks for coming back. We always love having you. When you were a young and single sex researcher, did that complicate your romantic life? Did guys sexualize you or react badly? Yes. I couldn't even get the question out of my mouth. The answer is yes. Yes. It's a difficult thing as a, as a young single or not, um, you know, sex educator, sex researcher, sex interested person. And, and what is the problem that, that, that guys hear that and they think, oh, I don't have to, I, there's no boundaries now. I can say and do whatever I want because they're a sex person. Yeah. I think some people think that you talking about sex means that you're interested in having sex with them. Um, so that's the challenge, especially if you're not you know, interested in having sex with them. I've had that same issue. I've had that same problem. It's a problem for sex advice columnists too. It is, yeah. And so, so there's that. Um, I think some people also are kind of drawn to whether, again, sex advice columnists, sex educators, researchers, therapists, whoever, who maybe are really struggling with something about their own sexuality. Um, and think that maybe your comfort with it uh, can somehow fix it in them, or you'll accept whatever it is that they throw at you. So I think there's that too. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, in, in this in this uh, you know young woman's case, I mean, she's facing a lot of other you know other guys just sort of saying that they're turned on by what she's talking about and they're aroused. So she's trying to kind of connect with them and talk about stuff she's you know like mentally excited about, and they're coming back at her with. Um, like physical arousal and trying to turn it into a sexual situation when coming, to her it's not. Coming back at her with boners. Yeah, basically. I've never liked that word, but yeah. <laughs> so how does she, she says, how can I be empowered uh, in my work without having partners sexualize me or potential partners sexualize me in this way? How do you shut that down? Well, I, I think there's a few things. I mean, one of them is actually, I think, some self-reflection that, you know, she also mentioned that she's known she wanted to go into this kind of career path since she was 15 and she's 21 now. So she's had six years at least to become really comfortable with this. And for a lot of these other guys, you know, growing up in a largely sex negative society, they haven't, right? So this is new to them. And they have like this, this real live person who they're interested in who's talking about sex and that's confusing. So maybe some compassion for where they're at, um, because throughout her whole journey in this field, she is going to have to at least understand where people are coming from, too, right? So there's that. 
let's sit with that for a second. Yeah. Because I think that's really smart. You're saying that young men that she may be interested in her dating, her peers, her same age, she's given herself permission to to think uh, about sex and talk about sex in a way that these guys might not have ever been able to give themselves permission to. And just meeting Absolutely. someone who's in that place of I can think about this and talk about it and embrace it uh, may inst- you know draw out of them a reaction that's a little giddy and out of control because they've never had they've never been with someone where they felt they could open up about who they are and be honest because the sex research is all about what's really going on and people being honest about who they're doing what they're doing what they want to do and somebody who's never been with someone they felt they could be fully honest with may overreact may may misinterpret and, and, and throw it out there in a way that she finds off-putting and you're saying have a little compassion for these guys which would look like what like like in that interaction what does that mean well, you know, you also used a word though that I want to I want to pause at, which is giddy, right? Because I mean, I'm also kind of hearing this and, and thinking, yeah, they might feel giddy, they might feel nervous, and what do you do when like you're young and you're nervous too? Like, you make a joke about things or you talk about sex the only way you know how, which is to be aroused, you know, mm-hmm. and to say, oh, this is how I'm feeling, especially if you're a guy and you've been socialized, like that's the one way you're supposed to talk about sex. So she can sort of notice this, she can learn about it, but I also think it's completely fair. And probably wise of her to say something like, you know, like, I can appreciate that you feel aroused, you know, but like, let me just tell you where I'm at, you know, and and this is a really hard thing for me about dating and getting to know people because I'm so excited, you know, about sex education, sex research, whatever topic she's into. I love talking about it um, because it's something I'm just so interested in and I can see myself doing for a career. But every time I do, I feel like people turn it into Um, an issue of their arousal. And, you know, that's like a very honest, authentic thing to say. If she really, you know, she's also talking about dating, which is about getting to know people and letting them get to know you. So I think she should also be telling these guys some of the same things that she's telling you, which is, you know, how it makes her feel to have every mention about sex turned into you know, uh, some type of like foreplay arousal kind of encounter. But your lesson about, you know, having some compassion, what that basically says is give guys a second chance. Like if a guy has a poor reaction or reaction you find off-putting when you tell him you're an aspiring sex researcher, push back, tell him that that's not appropriate, and then see if he doesn't self-correct. And if he self-corrects, maybe he's somebody you could think about dating. Because my impulse, of course, was to say, when you tell people this and they have this reaction, hey, that's the sorting hat. You told them one thing, they told you everything, get rid of them. And you're saying, yeah, a lot of people, particularly young people, might have this reaction. Have a little compassion, a little understanding, and maybe give them a second chance. Yeah, I think this is a developmentally totally normal um, path that these guys are on. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of like when, you know, the first couple days of teaching human sexuality, you know, with college students, there's some nervous laughter, you know, there's some uh, kind of silly jokes. And once they kind of realize this is a space where we're actually just going to talk about sex, that changes. And um, yeah, I would give these guys another chance, but also be honest with them about um, the reaction that she's having. Do you think this is a problem that gets better in time that 30 year old guys wouldn't have the same kind of giddy immature reaction that her peers at 21 are having? do. I mean, I know from like, you know, dating men of all ages when I was single, how that, how that worked. And sometimes they're like stifling a smile, but you know, I mean, it's also the case that the more that your partners get exposed to this type of, um, you know, conversation that it becomes super normal and mundane to them. 
And they all, you know, so the ones that stick around, the ones that you want to stick around will eventually almost certainly become, uh, it'll become just like, you know, second nature to them as well. Dr. Debbie Herbetic, professor at Indiana University School of Public Health, sex educator at the Kinsey Institute, sex researcher, author of The Corgasm Workout and other terrific books, including Because It Feels Good, which is a book I recommend frequently to young women. Debbie, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Thanks. Take care. Hi, Dan. I am a gay male from Houston, Texas, and I actually have a question about religion. I'm a longtime listener of the show, and quite often you've stressed the idea of of not sex shaming or shame in general. And one thing that I have the question about is actually shaming those who have faith in God or whatever their religious area might be, um, because I happen to be a Christian and a gay male, and I find it sometimes offensive when you are so adamant of denying the existence, which I completely support your right to not believe or believe or do any of the things that you do that make yourself happy. I think I need that respect in return and not being shamed because actually being a Christian and being gay is also a negative within our community. Thank you. I, I fully support gay Christians, fully support gay Jews, fully support gay Muslims. If There are people out there who can, as the posters in New York said when I was there recently for some art show, if people out there can reconcile their faith with their sexuality, and sometimes it's straight people who need to do that too, reconcile their faith with their sexuality, have at, more power to you. I, however, regard my sexuality as one of the things, or I'm grateful for my sexuality because it liberated me from faith. It pried me out of the Catholic Church. And rather than finding some more accepting, gay-positive, affirming denomination, I looked at religion generally and thought, yeah, this all seems like bullshit. This just seems like stories people are telling each other to make themselves feel better about death or to exert power and control over others by convincing them that there are imaginary sky friends who want you to do X. And if you don't do X, you're in trouble with not just X, but earthly powers as well. And yeah, it just seems like a bunch of bullshit to me. And I'm sorry uh, if I'm adamant in my beliefs. It is perplexing when religious people are often aggressively, sometimes violently adamant about their beliefs, adamant to the point of flying planes into buildings, adamant to the point of burning people at the stake, adamant to the point of denying other people their full civil rights, adamant to the point of slapping birth control out of women's hands, adamant to the point of denying same-sex couples not just the right to marry, the right to exist. There's a lot of adamance in the world that's causing a lot of problems. The adamance of atheists and agnostics is generally not the kind of adamance at play in the world that's generating a lot of misery. I'm sorry if me saying things like imaginary sky friends and Jesus makes you feel bad or makes you feel self-conscious, but you're just going to have to deal in the same way that Every day of my life, I have to deal with the fact that there are millions, if not billions of people on this planet, many of them your co-religionists, 
who think that I am going to hell, where I will be tormented for all eternity because I put Terry's dick in my mouth this morning. And I'm able to get through the day. I'm able to function knowing that not you, of course, but many of your co-religionists, many Muslims, many Jews feel that way, believe that, adamantly believe that. And yet I can struggle through the day without feeling derailed by that. And I think that you should be able to get through the day, even my podcast, if my podcast is a part of your Tuesday, without being derailed by the fact that, yeah, there are some people out there who are as adamant in their disbelief as you are in your belief. So, yeah, sorry. When religion comes up, you're probably going to want to see that little button on your phone that skips ahead 15 seconds when you're listening to a podcast. You just want to hit that like three or four times and I'll be done. And then we can return to common ground, like fisting questions and rabbit holes. Hey, Dan. Um, I'm a late 20s female currently living in New York City. And in about a month, I'm moving to D.C. to start medical school. Uh, I've been with my current boyfriend for about two years. Uh, we've been monogamous and he is in his mid-30s. He also lives in New York. Uh, he's expressed that he doesn't really want to move to D.C., doesn't want to pick up and uh, start his life all over again, even though he has a job in an industry where it would be pretty easy for him to pick up and start all over again. Um, I understand where he's coming from, though, and uh, at least for my first year of medical school, I'm actually pretty fine with it because I want to have uh, my time to myself to focus on my studies and not really feel guilty about having someone pick up and move their whole life and then not really having much time to spend with them. So I've had a couple of experiences with open relationships in the past. And uh, whenever we've talked about what we're going to do when I move, he seems to think we're not going to have a lot of time to visit. So I brought up the possibility of us opening up the relationship. I haven't gotten much in way of a response from him about this. I'm his first girlfriend ever. And according to him, I'm the one and only love of his life. When we first started dating, he expressed worries that he would mess it up because he's never been in a relationship before. And he's kind of expressed the same concerns about trying a long distance relationship or an open arrangement just because he's never done it before. He's worried he's going to mess it up. His biggest fear, he says, is that all of this will fail miserably and that we won't be in each other's lives anymore. And that's the last thing he wants. Uh, also, he struggles with depression and is kind of unwilling to get it treated for various reasons. Uh, it just kind of seems like he would rather not even talk or think about me leaving and pretend like it's not happening. Um, I love him. I still want to be with him. He's a wonderful person. The sex is amazing. But I'm really looking forward to starting this new part of my life that I've worked so hard on. And I just I can't pretend like I'm not leaving in a few weeks anymore. Break up with him. You're welcome. Probably not the answer you wanted or expected, but I think it's ultimately what you're going to need to do. You say he's got depression. You say he's unwilling to discuss open relationship. He's unwilling to discuss a long distance relationship, that he's just in denial about you leaving. And here you are about to head out to med school, which is a huge, huge commitment. It's a huge amount of work. It's going to require every ounce of your focus and dedication. And here he is creating for you an enormous distraction that's pulling your focus and what's going to happen when you move in a couple of weeks? Are you going to continue to process this and argue about it? Is it going to continue to be a distraction? You say he's got depression that he won't be treated for, and he obviously is unwilling to discuss what your relationship is going to look like in the near-term future for many years because he doesn't want it to look that way? 
I, I can't pry open his head and say, oh, this is him intentionally sabotaging your dream of medical school. But intentionally or not, this could sabotage your dream of going to med school, of becoming a doctor. If he creates, through his unwillingness to get his depression treated, through emotional manipulation, through refusing to engage with you about how you're going to structure your relationship over the next few years, it could be an impediment. It could be a distraction. It could contribute. It could result in you washing out of medical school. So you need to cut this limb off and cauterize that wound. You have to tell him how it's going to be. Obviously, it's going to be long distance if you two stay together and he's unwilling to leave the place where he's at right now. And I actually think that's best. I don't think he should come with you and be a burden and be sitting in your apartment all day lonely with no friends and no distractions and no, no, no support system and entirely dependent on you and you feeling guilt racked about having to pay attention to him and spend time with him when you should be paying attention and spending time with your studies yeah, you don't want him to come with. So it's definitely long distance. The only question then is open or closed during the long distance or DADT. Whatever happens, happens while we're apart and we will get back together and we will see each other while we can and we can still think of each other as boyfriend and girlfriend, but I'm not going to be available to you all the time via phone and email, text. I'm going to be up to my eyeballs and my studies. So it'll be that kind of gossamer thread connecting you long distance relationship until you're done. And if that's not what he wants, if that's not the price of admission that he's willing to pay to continue to be your boyfriend, then you end it. But circling back to what I said at the top of my response, I think you should end it and not in an acrimonious way, not a blow up way. Just I need to focus on my studies. And so I need to be unattached right now. I need to have no emotional obligations to anyone while I do this thing and I'll be done with this thing at some point. And then if you're still single and we're still in touch, we can circle back. But during this time, I want you to get out there and live your life and you don't need me to live your life. Stand on your own two feet, have fun, date other people. And then we'll see where we're at when I have a doctor in front of my name and a little more time for you. Hi, Dan. Um, I have a question for you that just arose like 20 minutes ago. My friend is dating a new guy that she met on Bumble. And um, previously, she hadn't known his uh, last name. And I wanted to Facebook stalk him or Instagram stalk him. So tonight, we were hanging out. And she texted him asking for his last name. And I Facebooked it. And there was no results. And I Instagrammed it and there was no results for anyone with that last name or and first name. And then I Googled it and the first thing that pops up is a sex offender registry. And his charges were, it was like selling slash distributing obscene materials containing, depicting a minor. And that sounds really bad. That sounds like kitty porn. <laughs> And I don't know what it means. Obviously, like we first go to like he's evil, horrible person. But I have uh, like heard stories. I've heard about the sex offender registry just kind of ruining people's lives for minor offenses. So, I mean, I don't think like anyone should give pedophiles a chance. But am I crazy for thinking that? Like, there could be an excuse for this. Like, should she hear him out? 
should she even talk to him? She's had relationships in the past with horrible people, and she has a reason to not be interested in anyone that treats any minor or anyone <laughs> in their lives with, like, disrespect. And, yeah, the fact that I don't know if he was trying to sell or distribute actual kitty porn or if he had, like, photos of a girlfriend in the past and they were both teenagers. We don't know what's going on. But I just thought this is like, I'm super curious about what happened to him. And I thought that you might have some valuable advice. It would be nice if the only people who wound up on sex offender registries were sex offenders. There are people on sex offender registries because they streaked at a sporting event. There are people on sex offender registries because they urinated in public. There are people on sex offender registries for distributing child pornography because they took pictures of themselves or swapped pictures with their girlfriend or boyfriend who happened to be a year or two younger than them than technically minors. So knowing he's on a sex offender registry and the reason given on the sex offender registry for his name being on it, as damning as it seems, the reality may be a little bit more complicated and exonerating. But the only person who can answer that question, the only person who knows why he's on that sex offender registry is him. If he's on a sex offender registry, there are also court documents out there that would be available to anyone who wants to verify his story. You know what you know. You did a little unrequested internet sleuthing on behalf of your friend. And I don't think you can sit there and know that and not share it. So I think you should go tell her. And you are the kind of messenger in that instance who is likely to get shot so brace yourself for impact, but go tell her. And then she should have a calm, rational discussion with this guy about why he's on a sex offender registry. And then whatever he tells her, she can independently verify. And she should, particularly if she's contemplating at some point scrambling her DNA together with this dude. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old straight female. I've been dating someone for about six months. Um, things are going really well. My friends and family love him. He's an incredible partner and, you know, so many different ways I feel really lucky to have him in my life. Recently, after a night of drinking, we had come home and I was just kind of scrolling through channels on TV and something about Larry Nasser was on. And my partner got really worked up and raised his voice and talking about kind of how fucked up that situation was, and which obviously is true. My partner's super laid back, though, so this reaction was totally out of the ordinary. That prompted me to ask if he's been abused as a kid just because, like, he reacted in such an extreme way. And, you know, he told me that both he and his dad actually had been sexually abused as kids. And so I asked him if he wanted to talk about it, of course. And he said no. The next day after we woke up, I asked him if he remembered sharing that with me. And, you know, again, asked if he wanted to talk about it. And he said he remembered, but he didn't want to discuss it. You know, I just told him that I love him. It upsets me that that happened to him, and if he ever does want to talk about that, I'm here to listen. And I just kind of left it at that. Um, it's been a couple of weeks now, and I can't shake this feeling that I'm just ignoring it. Like, am I being unsupportive by not asking him about it further? Is that the right move to let him talk about it if and when he ever wants to? Um, I keep finding myself second-guessing the things I say or do. Like, I don't want to do or say something that's triggering to him, but since I have no idea what may be, I kind of feel like I'm walking on eggshells. Same thing goes for sex. They, you know, I don't want to spring something new on him or 
pushing outside our present sexual boundaries because I'm afraid to trigger him. And, you know, typically I'd be super open about discussing those sort of things, but I feel sort of frozen, not wanting to do the wrong thing. And, you know, maybe that's not fair to him to treat anything differently. I just want him, you know, to feel safe and supported and accepted. And I'm just not really sure the best way to do that right now. So you've been dating this guy for six months and you've had a lot of great sex in six months. And so far, the only trigger you've encountered is the news plus alcohol. And that would lead me to believe that he doesn't have a a lot of triggers, which is not to say you shouldn't check in with him about your concerns. So I think you should have one more conversation with him. You should broach the subject one more time and then leave the ball in his court. He knows that you're there for him and that you're ready at any time to listen if he has anything he wants to get off his chest because you told him that. You have one follow-up question and that's how you should frame it. Just one more thing that I need to ask you about because I have a concern that I may accidentally trigger you during sex if I do something, if if I bust a move. So if you have any triggers, please share those with me so I feel more secure when we're having sex so that I don't worry and I don't tense up about putting a foot wrong about doing something that might upset you or or re-traumatize you, which is the last thing I would ever want to do. And if he has no triggers and it's possible that he doesn't, and you'll have to accept that and believe him. He can tell you that if he does, he can tell you what those triggers are. Now, some people with sexual trauma, uh, and triggers, they don't realize what those triggers are until they're triggered. So you may try something at some point in the future. If he says, I have no triggers that triggers and traumatizes him. So knowing what you know about his sexual history, and I think this is good standard practice for anyone in a sexual relationship with anyone, history of sexual trauma or not, be solicitous. Seek out someone's active, verbal, enthusiastic consent. Don't bust moves. Discuss moves. Then bust those moves later. You can have sexy conversations. It doesn't have to be a contract negotiation. You don't have to bring two lawyers into the room. You can have a conversation with someone about everything that you would like to do with them or some new thing you'd like to try with them in a way that is sexy, that isn't contractual. It is possible to do that while soliciting their input and inviting it's always really important to invite the no. I wanted, I was thinking this might be fun. I might want to try this. If the answer is no, just say no because there's lots of other things that we can do and we can try together. Always invite the no when you're going to try to have that sexy conversation about the stuff that you might like to do so the person doesn't feel obligated to play along because you're so obviously excited about this thing. You can roll out that thing with excitement and anticipation and invite the no. Empower your partner to tell you no. History of sexual trauma or not. And so, caller, this is a good general practice for anyone, but particularly for someone in your circumstance where you know that your partner has sexual trauma in his past. He brought it up once, not something that he's comfortable discussing every day, obviously. And you worry that if you bust a move during sex, you might upset him. So don't bust moves. Discuss moves in advance in an upbeat, friendly, sexy way while inviting his no. Good luck. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I have a question about how to proceed with a trans woman that I've been in contact with. Basically, we talked a handful of times before the whole Craigslist personal ads went away, but we never managed to meet up. A few months go by, turns out 
we have a mutual friend. Uh, I reach back out for some interest. We talk for a week, find out a lot more about each other, uh, find out that there's a creative workshop going on in our city that we, uh, she's actually already taken part in and she kind of invited me to, but then I've been ghosted since. So I can take a hint and I have no problem taking a hint, but I kind of really want to go to this workshop. I'm at a point in my life where I'm really trying to pursue some creative outlets and this could help me in a lot of ways, but I don't want to go there and potentially make her very uncomfortable and feel threatened after she, you know, chose to not contact me anymore. I mean, I suppose there's a reason and I just understand that uh, she probably faces a lot more problems and tribulations in her life than I do. And uh, I don't want to make somebody uncomfortable if I don't have to. So, uh, yeah, I actually just crafted a whole text to her, almost asking her permission if I could go. Um, but then I decided to give you guys a call and uh, see what you might think. Of course, I'm going to tell you just to go to the workshop. Ghosting on someone is not a restraining order. You can ghost on someone and they're still allowed to leave the house. They're still allowed to go places where you might be. You're concerned trolling yourself here, I think. I haven't read your exchanges with this trans woman who ghosted on you. You met on Craigslist and she's a trans woman and the natural inference is that you were seeking a sex partner, that that's what you were doing there on Craigslist and seeking out a trans woman in particular. And you had this exchange with this woman that went on for a while, went on so long that it moved past your desire to suck on some hot, sweaty trans lady cock to your artistic ambitions and this workshop that came up too. So you were engaged with each other in this way that took it beyond just a Craigslist personals hookup. But where did it go? And when and why did she ghost you? I would be very interested to read the last three or four text exchanges or email exchanges before she stopped speaking to you. It is possible that you said or did something in the end that made her so uncomfortable that she cut off communication and you showing up at this event may make her feel uncomfortable. But if you're showing up at that event because you have a genuine interest, you're not just showing up at this event to be in the same room with this woman, you have every right to show up at that event. If you did something super creepy that you didn't share with us, it would be considerate of you. It would be kind of you. It would be good penance for you to skip this event and go to the next one or find another artistic forum event, meeting, whatever this thing is, that covers the same ground and go to that one instead. But again, ghosting on someone is not a restraining order. It would be unreasonable for the ghoster to expect the ghost E never to show up anywhere they might be ever again. But caller, if you're concerned that your presence may make this woman feel threatened or unsafe, that makes me wonder what was in those final exchanges before she ghosted you. If indeed you did or said something legitimately threatening that made her feel unsafe, hence the ghosting, don't go. Let her have that space. Let her have that event to herself. If you shit the bed, if you did something that made her feel uncomfortable, that you regret. If you didn't though, if she just stopped communicating with you for reasons as so many people do these days without explanation without 
cause, you should go. Hey, Dan. Guy here on the East Coast. Very much attracted to men. Always considered myself gay. And I was talking with a coworker, and she mentioned, oh, have you seen this person who came to work the other day? And I said, oh, yeah, he's so hot. And the whole conversation said, you know, he's a trans man, right? I said, oh, good for him. That's great. Because, well, do you still think he's hot? And I said, yeah, he's hot. Like, he's a hot man. She says, well, what about his dick? I said, well, he has a vagina, I'm assuming, but he's still a hot man. She says, would you have sex with him? He said, yeah. She goes, wait, I thought you were gay. He said, I am gay. She goes, well, shouldn't you identify maybe as pan or as... So, like, she started listing off all of these things, and I think to myself, wait, should I? I find myself attracted to men. and Sometimes a man has a vagina. I don't know. To me, that a dick doesn't make a man. A man is a man, and it's hot regardless. And I always think of you when you say something to the effect of, like, I wouldn't eat a pussy out, but, like, I would eat out this hot trans guy, for sure, in a heartbeat. But I also, like, would love to suck a dick of a hot guy. So I don't know. Is it? Am I pan? Am I gay? Does it matter anymore? I don't know. Are we too woke for our own good? What the fuck is wrong with your coworker? That's the most important question here. What the fuck is wrong with your coworker? Outing someone for being trans, which is not your coworker's job and a complete and total, ironically, dick move. Yeah, fuck your coworker. And then drilling down on you, pressing you for what it means that you as a gay man are attracted to this other man and what impact that might have on the way you should identify sexually as opposed to the way that you do. Dude, you're gay. He's a guy. You're attracted to him. For you, pussy ain't a deal breaker. Good for you. You're still gay. He's a guy with a vagina and you're into him or you're attracted enough to him that you would fuck him and eat his pussy, good for you. You're still gay. You don't have to switch teams. You don't have to identify as anything other than the gay guy you are. It's just your gayness is a little bit more encompassing than some other people's gayness. That your gayness allows for the odd vagina attached to a hot dude. That dude, still a dude. You, dude, still gay. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old transgender man from Massachusetts, and I was just listening to episode 611 uh, from today when you uh, were responding to the woman who had questions for her transgender friend couple. Um, I thought the way you answered it was really great in that a lot of trans people don't want to be put on uh, the Trans 101 education program, but this couple clearly uh, felt comfortable trusting her and her family and Sometimes I think, especially when someone's living stealth, not telling many people that they are trans, it's really a huge relief to find an ally and to feel comfortable coming out to them. And then sometimes it can even be kind of exciting to get those questions that someone hasn't necessarily been asked in a while, and especially in the appropriate way that she seems to be going about it. So I just wanted to say thank you for responding to that caller because I think that uh, she's starting a beautiful friendship with a nice, lovely couple. Just a wonderful thing in today's world. Hi, this is a message in response to the Australian gentleman caller um, on episode 611 um, who found his cousin's girlfriend on Tinder. I agree with what you said, Dan, about, um, yeah, they could be in an open relationship, but here's another tidbit. I have been personally in a very happy relationship for almost four years now, 
And I only recently discovered that my personal Tinder app and my OkCupid account are still open. I just forgot. So, yeah, dude, don't even worry about it. Maybe she forgot to delete her Tinder app. Don't butt into their business. Hi, Dan. This is the married woman from the Magnum 610 who was wondering whether she should tell her husband about her crush on this younger guy because she was running out of funny stories to tell him. Um, You told me to just go ahead and tell him. And I was really still too afraid because I I just didn't know how he was going to take it. I didn't want it to change the way he felt about me. And I just decided I was going to just get over it. But he made it really easy for me. He tied me up and thanked me and told me to tell him who I was fantasizing about. I don't know how he knew. Maybe he listens to the Magnum. I thought I disguised my voice really well, but maybe not. Um, But I told him and then he fucked the shit out of me. And uh, afterwards, he told me uh, he thought I should fuck this guy. And um, I still don't think I'm going to because, again, I like his girlfriend and, you know, I don't want to be party to anything that's not ethical. But we ended up having a really wonderful conversation, a really honest one about the possibility of opening up our marriage for real. And um, now I'm kind of keeping my eye out for somebody, some hot young guy who it would be appropriate for me to fuck who does not have a girlfriend. Um, so thank you. And, um, and thanks to my husband, if you are listening to this, honey, that was fucking awesome. Oh my God, what a great way to end this week's show. Thank you for calling in to share that update. And we are going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. The deadline for submitting films to Hump, my dirty little porn film festival that tours the country, is coming up in September. Go to humpfilmfest.com and click on Submit for information about submitting your film to Hump. There's thousands of dollars worth of prizes awarded by Hump audiences, including a $10,000 Best in Show award for the top filmmaker. And all the films that go out on tour, each filmmaker gets a percentage of every single ticket sold. So please think about entering Hump. Again, go to humpfilmfest.com and click on submit for all the info that you'll need. Listen to me on Blabbermouth, the Strangers Politics podcast, every week with host Eli Sanders, Rick Smith, Katie Herzog. We're all there each week talking about what the fuck is going on. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Dr. Debbie Herbenick on Twitter at Debbie Herbenick. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.